Well, good morning. I'm Taylor. I'm a pastor here at Sojourn Galleria, and we are just, well, I'm really glad to see you, and it's good to be with you. I need this. I need this. I'm, I'm, I'm coming into Sunday just tired, and I'm just asking the Lord to refresh us with his spirit and draw all of us, those who know him and those who don't, to him through the person of Christ. So we're in Genesis, uh, as, as you know, as Sarah, as Sarah read, and we are here, we've been in chapter one mainly, and we're looking now, we're kind of pivoting to chapter two. We're going to be in Genesis for the next few weeks and even months up to Easter. And so we're here focusing in now, pivoting into chapter two. Um, I've been thinking about, in, certain, in prep for this sermon, about Christmas and about how back, back when we would celebrate just boys, when it comes to presents, boys like size with Christmas presents. The bigger, the better. That was pretty much our rule. It was unstated, but our parents knew it. And if the package was big, I wasn't a shaker. My son's a shaker. He's here, Seth. He's a Lego maniac. So when he shakes, it's like, okay, it's done. You know. Uh, But I wasn't a shaker, but man, it didn't matter because if it's large, I'm happy. And we, uh, my, but how wrong we were. My we have one sister, my brother and I, and she would open up a present and get like pearls, you know, freshwater pearls, and then a ruby, and then a couple of things. You know, the only daughter, like my mom loves to buy her these gifts, and what am I going to get my kids? A Tonka truck. So then we'd get, we, at the end of our thing, we'd go around, and my dad would always do a scavenger hunt, and we would run around the house, and we'd, one, one uh, I think it was the year that, and it's gone down in infamy, that my sister got pearls and some other jewelry in these tiny boxes. I got stilts you know, wood stilts. They're as big as Dallas. And I was happy as could be. Little did I know I was being duped, you know, but hey, uh, she wins. You know, she wins. No, but if size alone wins, if, if, uh, if size alone determines what is important in this universe, then man is the loser. We're nothing. The earth, because the, forget man, our habitation the earth that we think of as very large, now that we know the dimensions of the cosmos, is a mere speck. And we might have up for you just a famous, a now famous photograph that's called the pale blue dot. And it actually shows the earth, forget you, man, just think about your habitation, much bigger but tiny in the, in the chasm, the yawning chasm of the universe um, that we could call space for, the, for these purposes it's the earth is there, but from 3.7 billion miles away, and it's in the it's in the far right brown band, and it's yeah there it is you are here <laughs> there it is it's a speck that literally when I pulled it up on my computer my laptop that was uh, two feet in front of me I wiped I don't keep my laptop super clean and I wiped it I wiped the earth with my fingernail because I thought it was I had specks that were far bigger of dust on my computer which I think which I think reinforces the point of this photograph. If size alone matters, we're toast. We're toast. So uh, 18th century romantic movement, you have these beautiful, Turner is one of them, uh, one of the painters that would paint in this romantic vein. You have other um, landscape, massive landscapes, oil on canvas landscapes. You can go to London and um, go to their National Gallery and see uh, some of these, and you can see them all over the world, really, but these huge, vast landscapes that are intended to swallow. If there is, a lot of times there isn't a human anywhere on the canvas, but if there is a human, oftentimes he or she is a speck, a very small speck that you could see on this vast landscape, and that was a statement. It was that basically um, we're not that important. 
Now, there was more to the romantic movement than that, but that was one of the things that they, there was a, a nature worship, right? So it was kind of putting, it, putting a man in his right place. And hey, that's, that's one of the salutary um, aspects of being in the mountains or, or looking at the stars. Unfortunately, not in Houston sometimes, but, but outside of Houston, when you sit under a canopy of stars, it, my, as my, one of my mentors says, it right-sizes you. It does remind you how small you are, but if that's it, if we're just small and that's it, if size is all that matters, we're, we're toast. Darwin and materialism that followed from him, and even scientism that is the, the belief that is corollary to that that says that, so materialism is materials all there is, which is quite Darwinistic. That's yoked and harnessed to Darwinism um, in a lot of ways. Scientism is the belief that science is the only way to find truth, okay? It's not science. That's not science. Scientism is different from science. Science is a discipline by which we observe and measure and find out certain truths, but it's limited. Scientism, which is kind of what we've drifted into as a culture in large part, says that science is really the only way to find out truth. Um, if these are the things that guide us, if everything is just material, what can be measured, if that's it, including you and me, um, it's even worse than man is not that significant. It's, it's even worse than that. There's no meaning. If everything is material, then there's all I'm saying to you now and all you're thinking and things like beauty really don't exist in meaning. They're just concatenation of atoms and energy bouncing around and doing things, okay? And you can't extrapolate meaning from that. You can't do it. Ziggy Stardust is part of my title for the, that song, is part of my title for the, the sermon. Man is just stardust. Rats, humans, Saturn's rings, it's all the same stuff. There's no... There's no differentiation at all. It's a, it's a homogenous universe. It's one thing. It's not heterogeneous. It's not different things. It's one thing. Genesis 1 and 2 could not give us a more different picture than what I just described, than what is largely the milieu and the environment that we breathe in and live in. Even if we're militating against it and believing against it, it is, it, it, it is effective in encroaching upon our minds and hearts and, and trying to convince us daily because it's the world that we live in that really it's, it's all rats and humans and Saturn's rings. It's all the same. We're made of stardust and that's it. Um, if size is all that matters, if everything is material, um, we're toast in the end. And really meaning, meaning is just a fiction and beauty is just a fiction. But the opposite message is given in Genesis 1, what we've been looking at, and certainly here accentuated and with an with a exclamation point at the end of it, as it were, in Genesis 2, as Moses narrows in, zooms in, and shows us really the point of all this creation. Man and woman are so important in this narrative because they're so important to God. And they alone are made in his image, and he takes such exquisite care to craft them for himself, for us to be in relationship with him. It's the opposite picture it's this awesome God making all things, not, not them bubbling up from a primordial swamp mindlessly, but then beyond that, coming down and taking special care with them alone. It's amazing. It's the exact opposite of what I've been describing. Set apart from the rest of creation to rule over it in God's image and to spread God's image throughout, um, throughout the earth. Hamlet, Shakespeare's Hamlet says, what a piece of work is man. How noble in reason, how infinite in faculties, in form and moving, how express and admirable, in action, how like an angel, in apprehension, how like a god, the beauty of the world, the paragon of animals. We all have heard this. It's, a, it's an inheritance 
Shakespeare was well familiar with the scriptures. He was steeped in them because that was part of the way he was educated in his culture. We're losing that today, sadly. But this is very, very, this has got the, the Judeo-Christian biblical worldview woven, the Genesis 1 and 2 worldview woven into this idea, idea this anthropology, this idea that man is made in God's image and is special, distinct, distinct from all else. Um, and, he, and really, the first scripture that in, I would go to that parallels that is, is Psalm 8. David says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, kind of the feeling you have when you look at the stars. What's his utterance? What is man? That you're mindful of him. And more than that, darn are you just mindful of him. Not do you just recognize our existence. You care. You care for him. You care for him intimately. Um, and you set all things under him. This is God's original plan. This is the opposite of, of what we're drifting into uh, today, of naturalism, of materialism, um, which are corollaries of Darwinism. So I'm going to, just three points this morning. The first is by far the longest, but I'm going to try to shorten it. The breath of God, dead men walking, and a new creation. The breath of God, dead men walking, and a new creation. So let's start with just the breath of God. I want to hone in on, hey, if you forget every other verse in this sort of long text that Sarah read, this beautiful chapter, just hone in on verse 7. That's where we're going to be, this first point. It's the main, it's the main thing I want to take away for this sermon. We'll get um, next week more into the tree, that weird tree. Why is there a tree you can't eat? And then we'll get into marriage, the latter part of this chapter, the next week, and we'll just keep walking, okay? But the breath of God, point one, God makes a living creature, and it says that he forms man from the dust of the ground. We're going to press into that in Genesis 2-7. Gerhard um, von Rad, he was a 19th century German Old Testament heavyweight. He said, a uh, beautiful writer, which is rare among theologians, but uh, a bit liberal in his theology, but lots of, lots of meat, got to spit out the bones. He said this, he said, in chapter one, man is the pinnacle of a pyramid. So we've been in chapter one for weeks. We know this. Man is the pinnacle of the pyramid. All things are set under his feet, as David says in Psalm, in Psalm 8 here. In chapter one, if he's the pinnacle of the pyramid, in chapter two, he's the center of the circle. He's the center of the circle. So if you think about it, okay, take that image, pinnacle of the pyramid in chapter one, a different metaphor. He's the center of the circle. We kind of, re, Moses repositions us to look at things differently. He's, there's a, if all things are a target, we're at the bullseye. For some reason, God decided to do that. Um, but if you think, switch metaphors and think about cinematography, cinematography, Gosh, I can't, cinematography, that's a, that's a tough one. I'm just going to leave that aside, okay? Um, I know Nora could help me there because that that's what she majored in at NYU. But. Um, think about it with regard to movies, with regard to film. Think about it with regard to lenses. Michael's back there. He's our photographer. Um, you take, what you have is a wide-angle lens in Genesis 1. What you have in Genesis 2, and you've heard this, it's helpful, is you, you have a zoom in. Think about this as a... a a movie, a film. You have a zoom lens, and Moses takes this zoom lens from all creation. He really focuses in on the center, man and woman and God's creation of them. And we, we see that even in chapter one, right? The focus tells us what's important as we get to the end of chapter one. Man, is made, man and woman are made at the end. The best is saved till last. All creation is set underneath their feet. They alone are made in God's image. Um, and he speaks to us, and he gives us commands. And things like things that are massive beyond our wildest imagination, even though we have numbers, we can't comprehend them, like the stars. I mean, think about it. In Genesis, at the end of Genesis 1, at the beginning of this creation account, we have the creation of man and woman in God's image. 
The rest of the Bible is about what? That relationship. The stars in Genesis 1.16 get two words. In the English, it's three, and the stars. That's it. Man is so much more important to God. Um, But if you look at verse 7, zoom in here, it says that God forms or fashions man um, from the dust of the ground. I'll go ahead and read it again. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. Okay? So he forms or fashions man from this earthy clay. Um, the words are Adam, man. It means human. Okay? But in this specific instance, Adam, man. Adam's name just means man or human. Um, but he forms him from the ground, which in Hebrew is Adama. Just two more letters on the end. One letter in the Hebrew. So Adam is formed from Adama. In English, it would be like calling man a groundling which you hear some, what, in the Shakespearean theater, right, the, those that are in the front that have the cheap seats, they're groundlings. Okay, so if you're a groundling, you're from the ground. We have a special connection to the ground, and we were made to what? Cultivate it, bring out the best from it, rule over it. But what did the curse do? And we're getting ahead of ourselves. We'll be spending weeks in that, and we'll go to that a little, in, a little, in a few minutes now. But um, the ground, the sign of the curse is that the ground over which we were made to rule it pushes against us when we work it. It creates thorns and thistles. And then ultimately what? When I breathe my last, where am I put? In the ground. It opens up and eats me. That is conquest. It's not the way it's supposed to be. But there's a special connection to the ground. The curse reverses um, God's perfect design and skews it. And we'll get into that. But um, Blaise Pascal says this. He says, we see the universe as great, and it is. But mere size is not tantamount to greatness, as we see in Genesis here. Um, in a sense, it's, he, says, he says this, Blaise Pascal, 16th, 17th century, 17th century um, French mathematician, philosopher, writer, thinker, brilliant, died very young. Um, he said that it is the greatness in man that understands how great the universe is. It is because there is a greatness in us that sets us apart from the rest of creation that enables us, hey, that gives us the capacity, listen to this, to be awed by the size of things and the grandeur. Deer are not sitting at night under a canopy of stars chomping grass in a field awed by the stars. They're doing what they ought to be doing, but there's something that's not in them that is in us and that actually is not just in us, and we're gonna press into this in a little bit, but that is that permeates our being and that makes us who we are, okay? And we're gonna get to that in just a second. Um, God fashioned us. It's an uh, intimate image of him as it were, and I say this with trembling, but this is the picture we're given of the almighty creator who is just assumed in Genesis 1, not argued for. He has to be for all things to be. He gives meaning to all things, and he comes down as it were like a potter, And this image is used later in the scriptures and the prophets. And he kneels down with his knees. Again, I say it anthropologically. And he, with his own hands, as it were, he crafts us from the dirt. And he forms us and he fashions us. And we have an intimate picture of this. Again, another psalm by David, Psalm 139. It says, fearfully and wonderfully. Not, I came from nothing. I I bubbled up from from a prebiotic slime. Fearfully and wonderfully have you made me. And David is speaking for every single human being that exists. Fearfully and wonderfully, you have knit me together. God as a knitter? Wow. So 
homespun, so intimate, so warm, this image of God knitting you together, all your sinews and bones in your mother's womb. This is the image we get that kind of is an unpacking of Genesis 2 here. Um, But that's not all we get, right? I left off the last part of the verse. It says that he formed man from the dust of the ground, Adam from Adamah, and what? He breathed, gets more intimate. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And what happened? The man became, he went from a statue, as it were, this perfectly crafted and formed and wonderfully and fearfully made thing to a living creature. Because of what? Because of God's breath. That's right. So he didn't just fashion us. He didn't just finish there. He, in the Hebrew, he blew, he, yipah. You hear how onomatopoeic that is? It's, it's breathy. God blew his own life into you, into Adam. This is what makes us human. He didn't do this with any other creature, with anything else that he made, but he blew into us, and that's what brought us to life. What makes us alive? It's not just the blood pumping in us. That's deer have that. What makes us living creatures and separates us from everything else is God's own life and his own breath. There can't be a more intimate picture. Think about it for a second with me. He gets on hands and knees. He forms us just the way he wants us. And then he, to breathe his life into us, what has to happen? He puts his face to our face, to the face of Adam. His nose to Adam's nose, his mouth to his mouth. And he breathes through his nose and through his mouth into this creature that becomes alive with the very breath of God. And this is how, in a way that we get some in Genesis 1, but this is how in detail God makes the first human. Um, and no less no less exquisitely, but differently, he creates, he creates a woman. Of finer things, can I say. I try to accentuate that in most of my sermons, but it's true. In this account, equal in dignity and worth, but woman is finer. She's made not from the ground, not from that sturdy stuff, not from soil, not from clay, but from Adam himself, from his side. There's a connection there. And we'll get to that maybe next, maybe in two weeks. But um, there can be no more, no more intimate picture. He, as it were, and I say this with reverence, again, it's the biblical picture. I'm taking my cues from the scriptures. He kisses us. You, you want to know what you're made for? A kiss signifies relationship. You're made for intimate relationship with the God who made you, period. That's what makes you alive. That's what you were created for. Um, the verdict at the end of verse seven is man was a living soul, Okay. His body is good, so good. God pronounced it good, but it doesn't say man was a living body. It says man was a living soul. There's something more fundamental to your livingness, to your being, than simply your blood pumping. You can't be measured with a microscope and cut open and seen. It can't be discovered by science. Your humanity cannot, there has to be another avenue of knowledge than just science as a companion, okay, to understand what makes us human. And the Bible gives this to us here. Um, it's invisible, this part of us, this soul um, that makes us living, but it doesn't mean that it's unreal. Um, beauty, redness, and meaning, they can't be measured. These three things, there are many more. They can't be proven, okay? They can't be cut open. Um, they can't be discovered by science. If you're a scientism advocate, if you believe in naturalism, these things don't exist. Beauty, meaning, Something like redness, okay? That thing can look red, but something like redness, okay? Beauty, meaning they don't exist. Um, 
but most thinkers throughout most of history have insisted that these things are real. Um, man's soul is real. Uh, God, uh, man is not less than his body, but the Bible here in, in verse seven tells us he's more. He's more. He has a soul. And not just he has a soul, but look at the language here. There's a sense in which it doesn't say he, then he has a living soul and he's a body and soul. It says he is a living creature. And the word there, creature, is soul or nefesh in the Hebrew. He's a living soul. And so what it's really saying is um, that he, his breath of God in him that makes him distinct from all of the creatures is what makes him alive. And it's a, it's a unity. It ties together. There's, there's no... Uh, absolute separation between his body and the invisible part of him, the breath of God. Um, it's, he is an organic, um, unified being. Body and soul together are what make us um, living creatures and what make us human and what set, separate us from all other things. Um, and we kind of see that when we get into brain science and things. Like there's a connection, there's a distinction, but there's a connection between what is seen in our brains and other parts of our body and what is unseen, this unseen reality that gives us the sense that there's something more to us. Um, the more we dig in, the more we see there are delineations, but there are connections. And if you think about the Trinity, uh, Father is not Son, Son is not Spirit, but they are all one God. There's this a reflection of our being made in the nature of the Trinity, okay? Um, and so you can't evacuate the Spirit of God from someone and just have them be a body and have them be what they were created to be a living creature. You can't do that, okay? Um, Derek Kidner writes, note that man neither has a soul nor has a body, although for convenience he may be analyzed into two or more constituents. The basic truth is, again, here that he's a unity. He is a living soul, not he has a living soul, not his body has a soul. He is a soul, okay? So this is basic for who we are as humans, all right? Um, what makes us human is this, God formed and then breathed into Adam, this man, and he became a living life, okay? He became a living life. That's literally what it says in the Hebrew, he became a living life. So let's just take a second here and think about that. So the antithesis of that is you could extrapolate from that, you could be a non-living life as a human. Without the breath of God, you could still be alive, but this essential component of what makes us human could be gone, could be. You could be a dead life, a dead person walking, which we're going to get into in a second in our second point. Um, I just wanted to hit, I had Sarah read the whole chapter because I wanted to hit just a couple more things before getting to point two, dead men walking. Um, so we can have our full body functioning properly and be something other than living lives, and I'll get to that. But if you look at, I just want to touch briefly on verses 10 through 14, um, these rivers. If you noticed when she started reading, your eyes might have started to glaze over, or you might have kind of been like, why... Why rivers? Why Tigris, Euphrates, Pishon? Why, why the, and why am I told there's gold in this land? It's strange. Seems like, it seems like just Moses sort of started daydreaming all of a sudden, and then, or an editor came in, and the Germans, indeed, of 200 years ago would say there was an editor that came in and put this in there, and it makes no sense. Okay, why, why this? Well, in short, we're not going to dwell on it. It's a reminder that this is not an etiological explanation of why things seem to be the way they are. This is history. It's got, there are real geographical places and people that this happened to. There was a real man and a real woman that God made in this way from the start, in this place. And the Bible is full of that. It's full of archaeologically verifiable or not evidence. Places, people, battles, 
rivers. And so this is just a reminder of that. And if you look at this, it was somewhere in the ancient Near East, maybe between the Tigris and the Euphrates, but the flood could have well changed the course of where those Tigris and Euphrates that are now in Iraq are. And so you have these other rivers that flow through um, Cush, which is Ethiopia and another place. Some scholars think, this is a sidebar, that this could indeed be the land of Canaan, which God then makes a new people for himself later through Abraham and takes them to this garden-like land and puts them there just like he put Adam, you see? So either way, it's close, and it's a real place with real gold, and it's a reminder to us that this really happened. This, the Bible purports to be history. Again, if you were with us, and even if you weren't, in Genesis 1, we looked at how, read it how you will, Genesis 1 purports to be history. If you look at it grammatically, it has something called a historical vav. It's a grammatical marker that says this is history. It's pushing the narrative forward. These things really happened in this sequence, okay? Um, it's the, the stories of Joshua and the kings and the conquest and all that stuff have the historical vav in them, just like Genesis 1, okay? So this is purporting to be history. It really happened. Um, and it's also the opposite of Darwinism. This whole Genesis 2-7, God creating man in this intimate way, in his own image, Imago Dei. And this is, I just want to say for a brief couple minutes, this is perhaps the chief worldview-shaping characteristic of the West. It's the thing from 500 AD on um, that has separated the West from the rest of, uh, of civilizations. Okay, there are so many books written on why, why did things happen in the West the way that, why did we find science? Why did all these things happen? Why did the West have this advantage in so many ways over the rest of the world, basically? What was it? Were we smarter? Okay. Um, and actually, I would contend that it's this God making man in his image and enduing him with God-like characteristics and setting all things under his feet and saying, you are special and dearly and deeply valued from a book that shaped the West, that was the Western inheritance that helped lead. And also, all creation is good. It's not a waste product, and you can study it, and we're going somewhere, and you can, you can uh, tap into it and learn certain things from it. It's not filled with demons and gods, although those things, demons exist. But um, if you cut into a tree, there's not going to be a little god that pops out. You can learn things from this. It's good. God made you to cultivate it and to have dominion over it. But especially with this image of God thing, we think that all people think about human rights. Uh, it's just a thing that is natural to us. All humans have value. There ought to be human rights, okay? Um, as that's an inheritance of, the hu- of humans. No, that's a biblical inheritance. Actually, the rest of the world, and I have a ton of books in the back. I just kind of like brought an armload of my books from home. They're not necessarily on the list, but I just want you, so that I don't have to dump it all in here, I want you to be able, when you go after the gathering, go back to the back and take a look at some of those books. A lot of these books argue for this fact, that the, way, the reason we are the way we are is because we have a biblical worldview and inheritance, okay? Um, but it's really the opposite of naturalism or Darwinism, um, Vishal Mangalwadi, he's, one of his books is back there, and he's an Indian, obviously, and he wrote a book called The Book That Made Your World, and he tells the true story of, of Sheila, a little girl, a couple years old, uh, maybe, maybe younger, actually, a little baby, uh, and her parents, and they, so Vishal and his wife discovered in the late 70s, they were living in a little village uh, in India, and they discovered this, they did a house visit, and they discovered this baby girl the parents had some other children and some other sons, and this baby girl was weak, emaciated, um, on her last leg, and they, to their surprise, to their shock, what do you, what, what's wrong with her? They discovered that they were just letting her die, not feeding her, who's in a corner of the house. So they, 
without full realization, they twice took her to the hospital, got her back to full health, gave her back to her parents. But after the third time, the parents got the worst of it. I was going to say the best of it and had their way and let her die because she was an inconvenience to them. Um, And we're shocked by that, but he actually says, my Indian friends who have been secularized by college education believe, just as I do, that humans can create a different and better future for themselves. They agree that the destiny of a girl like Sheila is not determined by karma. She's not fated to live a life of misery. And my friends don't point to the Bible or to theological creeds to justify their belief. To them, it's common sense. But such an idea is not common sense in traditional India. Most families that harass, torture, or even kill their daughters-in-law for dowry are well-educated. For instance, in the Hebrew scripture Bhagavad Gita, the god Krishna encourages Arjuna to kill his cousins and teachers because reincarnation means that death for a soul is like changing its clothes. Um, The idea of Imago Dei is not in their worldview, in their holy books, in their system of thought, and so it makes a tremendous difference. The idea was not common sense in ancient or medieval civilizations, so he moves on from India. Infanticide was a common practice in ancient Greece and Rome. Notions of human dignity and rights came to India with Christian education. Such an idea is common sense to us because we have a Judeo-Christian biblical inheritance, but what we're doing as we deny that the scriptures and and the, the, the person they point to, Jesus Christ, has any place in anything but the private sphere Um, and we move into a very secular worldview, Um, what we're doing is we are smuggling in and stealing that inheritance and then saying, yeah, that's just normal. No, it's not normal. Um, It's something that we have from the scriptures. Tim Keller says this. um, He shows from the Proverbs how this wisdom is stolen or smuggled. He says, many young adults are unreligious and relativistic, insisting that every person has a right to create their own moral values and no one can tell them how to live. Yet, they have deep moral convictions against racism and sexism, We all know those are wrong, and and they are wrong, that they insist are true for everyone. But he says such moral absolutes are smuggled. They don't make sense if there's no God and all morality is therefore culturally relative. Um, In Wisdom's Banquet, he says, you have all the goods a human being wants, meaning, satisfaction, freedom, identity, and hope, but they're not stolen. They flow naturally out of a relationship with the Lord. Um, Darwinism can't protest but in fact provides the basis for and applauds um, these sorts of things. The starvation of of little baby Sheila by her parents, or as as I read about years ago, um, there were men, there were Westerners um, with some Chinese on a a boat going down a river in China, and a Chinese man fell overboard. It was kind of rapids, like if you're in there and not in a boat, your life's in peril, and nobody made any effort to go save him. It wasn't because they were worse, it's because their worldview didn't provide a basis for the value of human life. And the Westerners were shocked by this. Not, they weren't any better, but they had a worldview that insisted at its base, at the base of its holy book, that humans are made in God's image and matter, um, that size is not the only thing that matters. Um, so this, in fact, Darwin would applaud this because this is natural selection at its finest. Okay, if you're gonna fall out of your boat, then that's not survival of the fittest. Okay, that's not survival of the fittest. So um, you, there's no protection of the weak, quite the opposite, actually. Um, also, we see this, I had Sarah read further on in the chapter two, because we see this again with, um, with Adam classifying the animals. Um, we see that God brings every animal to all the beasts and all the creatures to Adam, and what does he do? 
He just, he gives them all names. And that seems kind of prosaic and normal and not that complicated, but in the Hebrew and the ancient Near Eastern worldview, to give a name to something was to appoint, to discern its character and to, and to place its identity in line with its character. And so what he's doing with the entire panoply of God's creation, all the creatures on earth, thousands and thousands and thousands, is he is going creature to creature and he's discerning, he's knowing them in a deep way, in a profound and true way. He's discerning their character and what makes them tick and he's assigning names to these creatures uh, one by one. And so we see Adam as an incredibly intelligent beautiful, discerning, understanding being. The opposite, again, the opposite of Darwinism. Um, Both pillars are attacked here in this chapter of Genesis 2. Universal common ancestry, that we all come from the same stuff and that things go from, here it is, from less complex to more complex and, and the intelligence rises and the creativity and the genius rises out of the primordial slime, as it were. That's an ascent The Bible gives the opposite picture. It says that God created all things with immediate divisions and he made man in his image from the start. And what caused us to descend, and we did descend, not ascend, is rebellion from him. It's the exact opposite picture of the Bible. And then God brings the people back to himself and then they decline. And he brings the people back to himself and then they decline. Darwinism goes like this. Our understanding of the world and of history in the West is the exact opposite of what the Bible gives here. That's just what I want you to see. But science actually seems to, if you look at paleontological records, it seems to actually underscore the Bible's perspective. The Cambrian explosion, which was formerly referred to as the Silurian explosion, shows that all of a sudden there's this fossil record. We don't have transitional fossils. There's not a, a wealth of them. It's just boom, all of a sudden you have these, these fossils that are, that are in fully formed and there. Um, so... And also there's no natural selection, the other pillar of Darwin. There's nothing, nothing of that here, quite the opposite. Adam is, he's at, uh, not at enmity with the beasts. He's, 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 he's master over them. He's, he is cultivating their potential. He's been given dominion over them. Um, and lastly, in this lo- lo- much longer point, in the next two are very short, he, um, he composes poetry extemporaneously. When what? At the end of the chapter when he sees woman. He breaks into song, and in the Hebrew, it's really beautiful. We'll get into it in a couple weeks, but he breaks into song. There's rhyme structure in there. There's parallelism. There's chiasm, which is a mirror or ring structure. Just write, he, It's not like he sits down and goes, give me an hour. Hang on. I got to write a sermon. He doesn't do that. He just sees her, and he bursts into this beautiful verbal song of praise that's extremely poetic. Again, this tells us that Adam is the opposite of what a Darwin and naturalism would tell us. There's not this mindless time in infinite matter that's sort of um, piecing this stuff together. God has made man in his image, okay? And then when we see this, um, again, in some of our digging and some of our exploration, like the first, the, some of the oldest um, archaeological evidence we have of man in his, in, um, leaving marks behind is in caves in France, other places in Europe and elsewhere. Um, there's art on the walls. So from the start, we see the oldest records we have, man was an artist. Man was a poet. He's always been a painter. In Genesis 4, even fallen man, the ancestors of Cain, the uh, progeny of Cain, I should say, excuse me, um, is immediately making music, forging iron and bronze tools, and building cities. Right from the start. Right from the start. Okay? So man puts, God puts his image by kissing man and breathing into him and forming him with care into man. It's the opposite of most of what we're imbibing today in the West. But we're borrowing all this sense of 
man's exceptionalism and his rights and racism's bad and sexism's bad from the Bible that we're rejecting. Do you see? So that's just set up. I know it's not the gospel, but it'll get us there. Secondly, and very quickly, dead men walking, point two, dead men walking. Again, uh, Von Rad, there's a problem with all this because Von Rad says in uh, about verse seven, it's the locus classicus of the Old Testament anthropology. This verse, Genesis 2-7, it distinguishes not body and soul, but more realistically, body and life. In other words, sort of as I hinted, and the New Testament does this too, we can have bios in the Greek, we can be physically alive, but lack in the Greek, a different word, zoe, which also is the same word in English for us. We don't see the distinction, life. Zoe life comes from the breath of God himself. We can be, because God breathed into Adam and made him a living life, we can be dead, unliving lives, walking corpses. Still, the Bible goes to pains to show us, still imprinted with the image of God, falling into sin and rejecting God and going our own way and being born into sin doesn't expunge that image. The Bible's very clear. Every human is made in God's image and retains that image, but it's shattered, it's broken, it's bent, and we are dead men and women walking. The breath of God has gone out from us. That connection to God, things have been ruptured. What makes us alive in more than a biological sense has been gone, has been evacuated because of sin. Um, so it's what theologians call, some theologians call it, we have a sensus divinitatis or a sense of the divine, even if we don't call it that. Some postmodern person, I said this in a sermon months ago, have said, I don't believe in God, really sort, of, really sort of crystallizing and encapsulating the sense of what our culture has right now, the ennui. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. There's this sense of something lost and broken, but we don't have a category for it anymore because we've dismissed the God of the Bible, okay? And C.S. Lewis said it differently. He said, if I find in myself a desire, but more positively, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most, pro have you ever, I mean, have you, is that not a description of our lives? We're finding desires that things that we run after cannot satisfy, but we keep running after them. Why? Because something in us is broken, lying to us, telling us maybe this time. It's like when you're going on a, mount, on a hike and you're, your guide is like, it's just that next hill. Man, after like the 17th time he says that or she says that, I hope you understand it's not that next hill. But because you're so doggone tired, you're like, maybe it is. That's what we do right? When we run after these things that were not meant to satisfy us, they were good, but they weren't meant to be our connection point, to make us living lives, right? But we go after them because we're broken and we keep convincing ourselves, maybe this time, not the case, not the case. He said, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, here's logic at its best. The most probable explanation is that I was made for what? Another world, somewhere else, something else this world's not telling me about that I can't cut open, right? But it's in me, it's real, and it's drawing me to it. And this is the answer the Bible gives us. It's God. He made us for himself, but we rebelled against him, and we are born into that rebellion, and we feel it, even though our category is dismissed, our, our culture has dismissed the categories for it, right? Finally, point three, and briefly, a new creation the good news is in the scriptures that Christ brings us back, not only back to this place, 
but even beyond it. Even though we live in the middle place now, he brings us back to God. He puts the breath of God that God breathed into Adam back into us, and he restores us to our Father. Um, I just want to say that by bringing up one scripture, and that's Psalm 2. You don't have to go there, but Psalm 2 is one of two psalms that are the portal or the doorway to the only songbook of God's people in the Bible, the Psalms, the Psalter. The Psalter is the collective, the collective expression for the, all 150 psalms. Psalms 1 and 2, neither has a title. The next like 38 psalms have a title. David wrote almost all of them, if not all of them, so maybe David wrote the first two. Either way, they're separated from the others that follow, from Psalms 3 and following. And they are a doorway, an entranceway into singing praises to God and being in connection with him, being a worshiping creature that loves God and is loved by God. And what are they? Well, the first psalm is, is this. Here's what the life of the blessed man looks like. You know what it looks like? It looks like full devotion to God and meditating on his word day and night and not keeping company with the wicked. Who's done that? Yeah, I'm the only one raising my hand, thankfully, because I'm just trying to be an example of a doofus. I haven't done that. None of us can, but this is the way to a worshipful, loving relationship with God, is this life of the blessed man. Here's the thing. Psalm 2 is not often read with Psalm 1, but it ought to be. Because like I said, it also does not have a title. It also is at the beginning of the Psalms, and it ends the exact way that Psalm 1 begins. That in the Hebrew is called a literary frame or inclusio. What it means is these are to be read not separately but together. And what is Psalm 2 about? Psalm 2, if you want to understand Psalm 1, you have to read Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is about God's solution to everything, to the brokenness in our hearts that makes us rebel against God and shake our fist at him and to the brokenness of this kingdom, this earthly kingdom and this creation, what our sin has done to the world. His solution is a person, a person that's gonna come from King David who is going to be a man and who is going to regain and to win for himself and for us all who are his subjects and children, the dominion that we lost. And not only that, the relationship that we lost. And how does that psalm end, okay? It says this. It says, this king is going to go after injustice like it's never been gone after before. He's going he's to end it. He's going to bring the kingdom of God to bear fully on the earth. That's bad news for us because I am unjust and I have a resident evil in me. But here's the solution. It says this. Kiss the son. Quickly is his wrath kindled, but kiss him, okay? Okay. Uh, Kiss him, lest you perish in the way. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. That blessed ending is just the same as the beginning of Psalm 1. Blessed is the man. Okay, so it finishes. Here's the key to blessing. It's to hiding in this ruler, in this son, taking, he's gonna cover you. He's gonna be your protection. He's gonna be your shield that you put up when someone's, when the wrath of God and his justice is coming after your sin. You put up the shield and the shield takes the blow and protects you. He is your refuge, and here's the key. Actually, in an intimate way, coming into relationship with him and kissing him. What what does your mind go to when I say that? What does it take you back to that we've just looked at? I hope it takes you back to this first, most intimate image of God in Genesis 2, creating you, creating your forebears, kissing, as it were, Adam, and breathing his own life into Adam. That is what we lost. That is what we lost when we decided to go our own way. And is what this ruler, whose name is Jesus, had and came to earth with. And it is what he gives back to us. 
when we look to him as our representative and our substitute who stands in our place both in his life and in his death. He brings us back to God. And when we trust in him and look to him and not what all the good that we're trying to gin up and do and say, look, I repent. I've been looking for satisfaction in life in every other way, but you made me for yourself and you made a way in Jesus Christ. He puts the breath of God back in us, which is called his Holy Spirit. And the word there is spirit or breath. It's the same word. It's the same word. He puts the breath of God back in us and he takes us, Ephesians 2 and elsewhere, from walking corpses who have this sense of ennui and, and we can never be satisfied in ways that we know we ought to be in brokenness to mending us, to making us whole and alive once again and reconstituting us, okay, and bringing us back from the dead. Ephesians 2 said, you were dead in your sins and trespasses, okay, but Jesus Christ and faith in him, in this blessed son, has made you alive again. So it's not about keeping a bunch of rules. It's not about a religion. It's about this man, Jesus, the God-man, who came down from heaven, left it all, and says, kiss me. The key to life and reconciliation and deep and lasting satisfaction in life is to kiss me, is to come back into relationship with God the Father through an intimate trust in me and what I've done for you and who I am and that I want to know you, I want to be known by you, and I want to make it, I want to make your life such that you can truly be known by other people, wide open, because you have nothing left to hide, because I know you and I love you anyway, and I died on the cross for you and I'm yours and you're mine. This is, this is the new creation that God calls us back into. Three very brief 60-second points, and then we're out. Um, first, take heart. You've heard this before. It's a killer um, line taken from a guy named Jack Miller. Take heart. You are far worse than you dared imagine. What? That's not, wait, oh yeah. Take heart. Don't worry, it's not over. You are far worse than you dared imagine. This is what the gospel shows us. Jesus Christ had to die to take us back to what God made us to be. That's how bad it was. In our place, he had to die. You're far worse than you dared imagine, but you're far more loved than you dared hope. The cross also shows us the love of God and the extent that he went to to save you and to bring you back to his father. He was crushed so you could be made whole. Um, Jesus shows us this about ourselves. Third, secondly, um, he shows us um, this about our neighbor. What I just said for you, he's done for the people around you, the person right in front of you, the people God's put you living next to, working next to, going to Starbucks to get a coffee from. It, he, Jesus is the way back to restoration, back to what we all know we should be but are running after other things for. And it gives, this Imago Day helps us to see, hopefully, the infinite worth of our neighbor and the only way for them to be restored. And we know his name. So it makes us a people on mission, doesn't it? Um, and, and thirdly, that the gospel isn't just about your salvation. It is about your salvation, but it's not just about your salvation or mine. It's about a whole new creation. It's about a whole new world that God is making as he restores person by person by person. And, this, and his kingdom comes to bear in this world through you as you tell others about this man, Jesus. Um, let, me, let me close in prayer. Um, Lord, I thank you that um, the pale blue dot isn't all there is. Lord, that size isn't all that matters, that rather we have a picture of what you see as important in the first couple chapters of your word that you give to us. Um, 
Lord, that we're not just Ziggy Stardust, um, that things matter and that uh, you matter more than anything and that you made us in your image and we matter a great deal and the cross shows us how much. Um, The only thing that gives us a picture uh, um, of how much worth you place on us and how much you love us more than the creation account is the incarnation, that you actually descended down, you became one of us and descended into our misery and took it upon yourself and nailed it to the cross. Um, I pray that we'd stop striving for worth, for meaning, um, in anything other than the person of Jesus Christ, that we would just surrender to him, repent and run to him because he is enough and he will bring us into a whole new world of love, um, Lord God. And so uh, I just pray that in Jesus' name, I thank you so much for your word. Um, To your name be the glory, amen.